Hey, Straight Talk on Leadership listeners. So glad to have you back on the podcast after Christmas weekend. We hope you had the best and safest holiday with your family and friends. This week, I am excited for you to hear part two of Murder and Augusta. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy this investigation. Hi, I'm Dean Chris. Welcome to Straight Talk on Leadership. This is what we'd like to say is the no BS zone, where we give you leadership tips, ideas, and practical suggestions to help you become a top leadership performer. Our goal is simple, help you become the best version of yourself and reach your highest potential as a leader. So set back, turn up the volume, be ready to change your life. job for the sheriff uh so it wasn't it wasn't uh very usual to have that happen and uh, uh they were serious and the da was demanding of our chief you get a joint task force going and you get it going right now and you get everybody you get every resource you have on this case i'm getting the gbi the georgia bureau of investigations to come in to assist in this case we're going to find mary and, and uh, so we had all that going on. We had a brand new chief of police that had retired from Tampa, Florida, uh, Austin McLean, and came to work in this town of 200,000 people. Certainly left an agency of, of 1,000 officers to come to an agency of 200 officers. He wasn't that familiar with the sheriff or how the politics ran in, 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 in Augusta. And so it was just, it was kind of madness everybody all over the place and you're right you, you, we had violent crimes the two lead violent crime guys uh didn't expect this 23 year old kid that they had just trained to be taken over a case like this they thought it was a missing person uh get a good description of her and and uh she'll turn up later with a boyfriend did they try to take the case from you once you realized it was a murder well, I'll tell you what happened, Dean. They didn't try to take the case, and I'll tell you why. They, they were, there was a lot of controversy because I told you earlier they opened a dumpster that night, and it was filled with trash bags, and they closed okay. it back. And when we found those feet in the landfill, my theory was right. The media was all over those experienced detectives who closed that dumpster door back that night and didn't go further. Mm -hmm. It became a huge embarrassment for the Augusta police and mm -hmm. for the new police chief. And the right. DA had no uh, no use for us at that point. It's get the county on this case because the city has already screwed up and shut the mm -hmm. dumpster door back. And now we know she was she was in that dumpster that night. You know, I guess the leadership lesson in that is, is that don't get so caught up in the details of everything that's going on that you don't really see what's right in front of your face. And the fact that she doesn't come home and the fact that her husband is just, you know, I've talked to a lot of victims and I can pretty, I'm not saying I'm an expert at it, but I can tell when someone's, you just get kind of an intuitive feel when somebody's dead on. I can remember working a murder case where we had a, um, a girlfriend that was a suspect and an individual who was found shot uh completely new right outside of where he was living 
And the obvious thing is you're completely new. People don't walk around the house completely new. There's got to be something going on, but it turned out, you know, that the girlfriend didn't have anything to do with it. He was actually robbed. But, you know, you, you kind of let those things like he's got another murder to work on. He's got all this stuff going on. He can, he's the dumpster on the middle of the night, nasty, stinky dumpster and flashlights back then were just getting Kel lights back then. You remember Kel lights came along probably in the mid eighties and nineties, their candlelight power. We used to be carrying those old batteries around, but now you're carrying the pretty good flashlights, but you know, it, it's interesting because if he had found that body, you would have never had anything to do with this case. That's right. And that would have been a lot, you know, it wouldn't have been the whole deal that it was. But when you look at it, why did you think she was in the dumpster? Because I started to believe what I was hearing from my friends at Defects that this is not like her. She would not be cheating. She would not have left her husband. This is uncharacteristic of Mary. I've got a DA who is saying, I go to the largest Catholic church in Augusta with her. She's a Christian woman. Something is wrong. And and I, it's if you're going to be a good leader, you got to have good listening skills. Why didn't you think the suspect would have kidnapped her? Yeah, and because, removed uh, her from the scene. Good question. And I'm sorry. I did, uh, yeah, because he didn't have a car. He had to oh, bum a okay. ride every day with other folks on the janitorial staff. And in fact, oh, okay. by then, I'd interviewed O.C. May Rawls, who offered him a ride from the building that night, on the night of May 12th. And he said, I'll catch you later. I'll call you when I'm ready to leave. He had set the alarm to the building an hour and a half later than he had done over the course of his couple of months employment. So he stayed, he had stayed there much longer than he should have. I think he set the alarm at 9.39, maybe 10.39, I can't remember exactly, but that was an hour and a half later than what he normally did. So at some point, pull us together here on the facts of where we're going so that we get a clearer picture of what happens. I, I, I'm really interested in what you think happened to her. Yeah, so so I think that uh, uh, Fielding was on drugs, he was on parole. I believe she, Mary was a nice looking lady. I believe that he made a pass at her. Uh, he had made a number of other women in the building uncomfortable. I think that, uh, now he later said that uh, he had gone to an adjoining uh, or another office and to smoke a marijuana uh, blow, uh, cigarette. And maybe she walked in and caught him smoking. He knew he was on parole. He didn't want to go back to prison, but uh, and he could have assaulted her at that point. We did find some blood in that room. Um, he took her jewelry. He dispersed that jury to members of the janitorial staff, the ladies on the staff the following day. They went to pawn shops and pawned it all. I went and recovered all of it. Uh, he showed up at, at the home of one of those persons that he gave the jury to with uh, scratches and abrasions. Uh, so we knew that there had been a struggle. Why would the janitorial staff willingly just take this jewelry that he's offering and not, would that not, I mean, if, if I'm working as a janitor and someone just randomly gives me something like that, I'm going to be sitting here going, where'd this come from? People, uh, they were, they were very poor. 
people just working a middle, uh, you know, middle class job, and uh, uh, they probably figured Robert robbed somebody or stole it, but they were they were just kind of basic people. Uh, you and I would do that, but these people were just kind of like, okay, he gave me a necklace, he gave me a ring. Well, after I, my wife worked in the detective division at the time as a secretary. She was fresh out of college, had gotten a four-year degree in business and joined the police department as a secretary. And uh, I put together a flyer, a missing persons flyer, describing her wedding bands and the initials in the wedding bands. Well, one of the janitorial staff see this flyer and says, calls up the girl who got the wedding set and says, you're wearing a murder ring. She goes, what are you talking about? Haven't you seen the flyer? That lady is missing and you've got her rings. And, and so that talk started to get around, which is why Fielding called me on Saturday morning when I was leaving the landfill to say, hey, I, I wanna talk to you. And he shows up seven hours later to talk to us. And uh, he, he didn't confess, but he gave, uh, uh, told a bunch of lies that we were able to disprove. And uh, before you get into that, can I ask you a question about sure. her body is in, you found her feet. So I'm assuming that they were not attached to her body, correct? That's correct. And so did he chop her up or you know, when reading the book and, and talking to you about this a little bit, I, I think there's a lot of details about finding the body and what you guys did to recover that body is uh, like the pallets that y'all set up and the, the way all that went about. Walk, walk us through these details before we go into him, because I think our audience really wants to connect the gruesome nature in which you find her body to now he's developed as a suspect and then how you tie all that together. Yeah, so after we found the feet, we knew we were on the right track. We knew our hunch was 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 on target and we knew that we had to recover the rest of her. So we had a massive area to, to uncover. It was a very tedious task. After the feet were found, we kind of shut things down and said, all right, we know she's here. Let's get some experience in here. Let's get some uh, forensic anthropologist in here. Let's get some folks who can identify human bone from animal bones. Let's get some folks who, who know how to, to uh, do excavation and, and recovery. And we got a lot of experts in. We contacted a lot of churches and said, we need volunteers. We called the mayor and the city was going broke right about this time. Uh, which is why they ended up consolidating in 1996. But we called the mayor and said, we're gonna need a lot of money. We need overtime. We need logistical things. We need water, we need food. We need to get restaurants serving our folks. We went from the five persons who were searching on that Saturday to, to 50 to 60 people a day. We, we constructed these uh, 10 by 10 wooden platforms, pallets, if you will, and we, we, we had uh, 10 of those, six persons to a pallet. We had to run out to Lowe's and buy these rakes so that the, the, the front end loader would pick up a scoop of trash, dump it onto a wooden platform. Six people are standing around that platform with rakes. And we very meticulously 
uh, raked through our trash to find her. We found 85% of her body, but she had been mangled by the machinery at the landfill. But she was dumped intact, right? She was dumped intact, and we believe okay, that gotcha. theory because of the absence of blood in the building. We found small amounts of blood in one office. We found a small amount of blood on the canvas trash cart that he was in charge of. So as all the custodians emptied trash in, their, in the offices for their areas, they would put it out by the door. It was his job as a supervisor to go around and pick it all up. His blood or hers? Both. Found his blood, found her blood on the canvas cart. We found his blood in her office in the carpet, a small amount, very small amount. So we knew that he could not have dismembered her in the building right. I and, and not have a large amount of blood. Do you believe she was sexually assaulted? Never proved that, but I do think that that's a possibility. I think it's the way he looked at the women there, the way he made them feel uncomfortable. Uh, we, uh, of course, because of the machinery and the, and the decaying of the body, we were just not able to prove that. We got a call from Dothan, Alabama, where he was the main suspect in a case where a woman was sexually assaulted, kidnapped, murdered, strangled, and uh, Robert Fielding was the primary suspect. They could never put the case together. They drove over to Augusta after our case, and uh, he was living in Dothan, Alabama at the time. He had contact with this woman who disappeared. They just could never put the case together. Uh, so, so we do believe that he killed, uh, he certainly killed Toby in 1969. We believe that he killed in Dothan, Alabama, uh, five years later, I believe, and then Mary Colley Stewart. I, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, after he got out of prison, he killed in Dothan, Alabama, and then he killed Mary Colley Stewart. So definitely dealing with a serial killer. Yeah. Hey, Alfonso, I'm really fascinated, you know, have with with my background, of course, you know, you're talking about a lot of internal politics that a lot of the public outside of law enforcement doesn't understand that it happens. You know, everyone sounds, oh, gosh, that city manager actually lets you go investigate the landfill. And I guess what I want to ask you about is when you obviously knew that politics was going to play a role in this, when you had the DA, who himself is a politician, and um, the chief of police, who is concerned about his job, um, showing up and saying, I want to report on this six hours into the investigation. What, what do you know about the Colley family? That Were they a prominent family in the Augusta area? Um, how, how does that all play into this? Very much so. Not, they were not rich, but we have a section of Augusta we call the Hill. Were, were the large old antebellum style houses with doctors and, and, and professionals live. Uh, they had grown up with the DA who lived on the hill. Uh, if you got a case on the hill, you treated it differently than you did a case in East Augusta. Sure. Uh, uh, so yes, politics played a role. Social economic status mattered. You know, if we had two gang members shoot one another, it's not as big of a deal if we got a a white woman missing from the hill, you'd better get on it and you better jump in with both feet and have every resource there is. There better be a wanted poster out very quickly. And you worked until you ran down every lead. You didn't go home. Back in those days, as you've learned from shows like First 48, you stayed up 48, 72 hours, four or five days, 
whatever it took, uh, depending on what was going on. And that's, that's what was happening in this case. You know, I have this thing about, I don't even like to really, I, I know we're talking about a podcast here, but you know, this, this guy who kills this lady is obviously a disturbed individual who is useless to society and, and commits a number of murders. I won't do him justice by mentioning his name, but walk us through, you charge him and what happens now that he becomes a suspect, you arrest him. Tell, tell us about the, uh, the trial, what happens, where we're at, and then subsequently what happens to him. And then I want to ask you another question as we close up our podcast here shortly. Sure, yeah. So we, we get him arrested. Uh, he, he's in the jail. But you remember, she goes missing on Thursday. On Friday, we develop him as a suspect. On Saturday morning, we find her feet in a landfill. So we search uh, for the next 31 days and find 85% of her body over a 31-day period. But feet are found on Saturday afternoon. Sunday, we're working and interviewing folks and finding that he's given away her jewelry. On Monday, we have impaneled, the DA has impaneled a special grand jury to hear this case. Largely circumstantial, but he's going with it. This is a family friend. I've got a community who's saying this is a rush to judgment. Are y'all sure it's this guy? Are you sure it's not the husband? You're railroading this man. You're, you're only looking at his previous record and you don't have any evidence. I've got a supervisor who doesn't believe in me. I've got a DA who doesn't believe in the police chief. I've got a chief and a sheriff who's got to work together. And that had not happened on that level prior to that. And, and uh, but we get him arrested. He gets indicted by the grand jury on Monday. I go down to the jail and pull him out of the cell to tell him to execute the warrant. You're officially being charged with murder. And he says to me, he looks at me and he says to me, y'all got me. I know you're going to fry me. And, and, and that was a spontaneous utterance. We were all familiar with spontaneous utterances. Wasn't invoked by any questioning from me. Uh, and uh, I was glad to get it. I immediately recorded it, documented it in my notes, called the DA. We were happy as hell to have it. Uh, the DA is moving for the death penalty. The community is outraged because he's asking for the death penalty for a black man. And because this lady is a family friend of the DA, so the DA is getting beat up in the newspapers every day about rush to judgment and death penalty. And folks are saying the death penalty is not fair to, to African-Americans. And at 23, I'm dealing with all of this. It, it, it was tough. You got a chief who's in the background who's not saying a whole lot because he doesn't know the how the political winds are going to blow. I got a captain of detectives who's still suspicious and listening to a certain segment of the community. And I'm forging ahead with the case. I know it's a good case. We have the trial. We had one person on the jury one of 12 who said, I'm concerned about his mental state from his childhood and I can't in good faith vote the death penalty. And that's why he got life plus 30 years for ro the robbery of taking her jewelry and her money. And uh, he died in prison in 2010. I mean, what, what a great compelling story. I mean, you know, the injustices that were done to her and, um, you know, Mary Colley, St uh, Colley Stewart, 
the injustices that were done to her and her family uh, by this ruthless uh, person who basically wanted his own desires and then he turns it into a murder over a, you know a cheap desire that didn't last more than you know two or three minutes and that's the way a lot of murders are but you know thankfully uh al you got the case the next day thankfully that uh you just were determined as heck man to make it happen and uh you did so let me ask you this question as we we kind of go to the end of the podcast here why'd you write the book i wrote the book because i wanted to memorialize my experiences from a young age there's going to be some young person out there dean who is going to 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 uh, want to find a way to share his story, to share his experiences, to change somebody's life. And he's going to be like I was for 20 something years. I'm not smart enough to write a book. I'm not smart enough to go to college. I didn't go to college until I was 30 years old the first time I entered a college. And, and uh, I don't want that to happen to the next young person who's as- aspiring to be somebody to do well, to do good. Out of all the adversities I had in my career as a young person, I was able to persevere. It wasn't until I took Master Presenter's course in 2020, February of 2020, that I thought I can memorialize this in book form. I can make it happen. All these years I've wanted to do it and I finally got it done. And I want people to read about that so they'll be inspired to journal. I write every single day since I took your class in February 2020. Prior to that, I wrote when I was in the FTO program, probably for 10 weeks, and I don't know where that journal is now, but and I didn't start writing again until 2020. I want them to understand the importance of writing and journaling and understand that you just don't have to be smart. You just have to be committed. There you go, man. Thank you. Kelly, you want to say something before we close this podcast out? Well, I think the only thing that I'll add to that, Alfonso, is I think that what you said with your experiences as a young professional, um, we just had our live webinar yesterday where we were being asked by people, the especially supervisor levels, they're very concerned that they can't get some of these younger people to commit to positions. And here, I'm sitting with two people that were in pretty high level positions at very young ages, Um, a lot of responsibility, a lot of commitment. And so hopefully this story will show and inspire some of those younger people to say, hey, I can do that too. You know, I really should be upping my game on that. I think we as leaders, we got to do a better job at at coaching those folks. And that's what we are. Uh, We're all a team. We've got to be better coaches and give those people something to aspire to, you know, long long time ago leaders were very apprehensive about teaching people what they knew because they 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 were uh, they were not competent and they didn't have enough confidence to believe that they could keep their job if they taught somebody else how to do the job now we at this day and time we got to realize if you're competent and confident you can teach people what you know without worrying about them taking your job that's right well, you know, Al, I'm going to close. Uh, thank you for being on the program, uh, the podcast. I, I do want folks to get a chance to be able to buy your book. It's on Amazon. The title of it is The Murder in Augusta by Alfonso Williams. You can visit Amazon. Hope your sales go up great. You know, I really do. 
how you talked about passing on information and doing it. I want to thank all the folks here. What we truly believe at LHLN is that knowledge sharing is one of the most important things that you will ever do. We want leaders out there to help other leaders. The title of LHLN is Leaders Helping Leaders Network. And we started it because of those reasons. And I know this, there's one thing for certain, that the future will never be bright if you knowledge hoard. But if you transfer knowledge, the future has a chance to be bright. With that, until next time, I'm Dean Crisp. You've been listening to Straight Talk on Leadership with Dean Crisp. Be sure to check out our upcoming live class schedule at www.lhln.org. In December, we will be introducing our newest class, Becoming a Character-Driven Officer, focusing on the new mindset of the 21st century police officer. Don't miss this limited time opportunity. As always, we are scheduling live classes all over the country every day. Please contact me, Kelly Corbin, at the email or phone number listed on our website. Please follow us on LinkedIn at Dean Chris, Twitter at LHLN5, Instagram and Facebook at LHLN Crisp. As always, the information, instruction, and inspiration are all there from all of us at LHLN to help you put your leadership into action every day. Until next time, we hope you change your life and the lives of those you lead.